speeding bullets. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Yes, it's Superman. Strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman, who can change the course of mighty rivers, bend steel in his bare hands, and who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 60 of the Man of Screen Podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and in this episode, we're going to look at episodes 9 and 10 of season 5 of The Adventures of Superman, The Phony Alibi, and... The Prince Albert Coat, the first of which will bring back much-beloved mad scientist of seasons 5 and 6, Professor Pepperwinkle, played by Phil Teed. The episodes may not be the greatest in the world, but it's always fun when the professor graces the TV screen. And we're going to finish the night off with an episode that's not looked back upon quite so fondly, as a young boy tries to do the right thing, but winds up giving away his grandfather's life savings in the Prince Albert Coat. And as is want to happen in these shows, you're going to see that it's going to turn out for the best for him anyway. But before we get to that, we have some feedback to attend to. I've got a letter from friend of the show, Dave McElvenny, and Dave is writing in on episode 55 of the Man of Screen podcast, in which I discussed the I Love Lucy episode, Lucy and Superman. Dave writes, Greetings, Mike. I listened to your Lucy and Superman episode during the mid-March storm of the century here in the Philadelphia area. Just uh, put Dave on hold for a minute. The uh, storm of the century was the same storm in which I brought, in which I recorded an episode in a house with no heat. Just a uh, little, uh, little note there. Anyway, Dave continues. The weather was cold and nasty with snow and sleet. It wasn't as big a storm as predicted, but it was a good day to stay inside and listen to a fun podcast. I'm going to stick Dave on hold again, and I'm glad to hear that... My podcast is one of his fun podcasts. As I recall, it might have been this one, this episode, but, uh, or maybe it was, uh, the next one, episode 56. I'll have to, uh, go back and check. But there was one episode in which Dave basically, uh, had his feedback in before I even checked my email after I got up in the morning. So it may have been this episode, but it might have also been one coming down the line. I don't remember. Well, anyway, back to Dave. I've never seen this entire episode of I Love Lucy, just clips and still pictures. So now I'm going to find and watch it. I was never a huge fan of that show, but I think this one will be worth a look. I'm going to stick Dave on hold again. And, uh, yeah, you know, I'm not really a big fan of I Love Lucy either. You know, it's one of those shows that I would, you know, if I came across it while it was on, I would sit there and watch it. But I never really made it a point to sit and watch it. Just, you know, maybe I would catch an episode if it was on and enjoy that, but... You know, I never went out of my way to watch it. And I do believe when I watched it for this show, that was the first time I actually watched the entire episode. So, Dave, if you know somebody who has Amazon Prime, you can check it out there. I believe it's on TV's Best Lucy Volume 5 or Volume 6. I know it's a Season 6 episode, but those volumes don't have every episode. So, that's where I watched it. But if you could find it another way, I'm sure you can do that as well. Anyway, back to Dave. I thought it was interesting that no one on the show ever mentions the name George Reeves, nor is he in the credits, much the way Kirk Allen was not credited as Superman in his movie serials. I suppose it must have been for the same reason to preserve the idea in kids' minds that what they were seeing was the real Superman. Part of me understands that, but part of me thinks it's not fair to the actor. I'm going to put Dave on pause for a minute. And yeah, I agree that I don't think that's really fair to the actor either. And I also wonder if 
that is probably not something that would fly today under current uh, Screen Actors Guild regulations. So back to Dave. I really love the clip of Richard Keith, who played Little Ricky, talking about being starstruck to meet Superman, even though part of him knew it was a fellow actor. It also reinforced the stories of how good George Reeves was with kids, which is a crucial characteristic for anyone who ever plays Superman, I think. Thanks for a fun listen as always. Live long and prosper. Dave. Dave has become so familiar to the show that he uh, no longer <laughs> feels the need to sign his letters with his full name. You know, he were, uh, He's that familiar to us now, so... Thank you, Dave, for your feedback. If you want to send in feedback as well, you are welcome to do so. You can email me at manofscreen at gmail.com. So with that being done, I am going to move right along and I'll take a quick podcast promo break and uh, we'll come back with the phony alibi. Hang around, folks. Justice League International Blah Ha Ha Podcast, a new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and JMD Mateus. We'll be going issue by issue in release order tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the Quarterly Book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter Batman Doctor Fate Black Canary Fire Ice Maxwell Lord Oberon Captain Marvel Rocket Red Captain Adam Mr. Miracle Guy Gardner Booster Gold Blue Beetle Nort And many, many more. Justice League International Blahaha Podcast Part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network Want to make something of it? Alright, welcome back folks. We're going to head right into The Phony Alibi. Original broadcast date was May 3rd, 1957. Writer was Peggy Chandler. Director was George Blair. Guest cast included Phil Teed as Professor Pepperwinkle, John Cliff as Ed Crowley, William Chally as Clippy Jones, Frank Krieg as Benny the Brain, and Harry Arnie as Old Mo Bilkey. And now for our synopsis, brought to you by SupermanHomePage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. Ed Crowley's gang has just robbed the Wentworth Jewelry Store. I can't speak in. This is Bill Henderson, Clark. I've got a story for you, unfortunately. Ed Crowley's gang's at it again. Hmm. You mean another robbery? Yeah. The Wentworth Jewelry Store this time. Schultze Garfield pulled the job. He's headed out Highway 201. I've got squad cars after him, but I don't know as he'll make it. He's doing better than 120. Well, thanks for the tip, Bill. I'll keep in touch. Acting as an impervious roadblock, the Man of Steel halts Garfield's getaway car, allowing the police to take him into custody. As Superman deals with Schultze Garfield, the eccentric Professor Pepperwinkle enters Clark Kent's office. Well, Professor Pepperwinkle. Well? That's you. Oh, so he is. Won't you come in? Oh, I'm fine. Just fine. Thank you, Miss Lane. Oh, that's good. If you're looking for Mr. Kent, so am I. What are you doing, Professor? Well, I thought he might be hiding under his desk. It's a very good place. I guess that's one place he hasn't thought of yet. <laughs> <laughs> now, Miss Lane, what can I do for you? Now, wait a minute, Professor. You came to see me. I did? Or rather, you came to see Mr. Kent. Oh, yes, 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 of course I did. <laughs> and a very good idea it was, too. Because how else could I tell him about my new invention? Oh, not another invention. Yes. <laughs> Miss Lane. 
Did you ever hear of sending flowers by wire? Why, of course. People do it all the time. No, 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 no. Not really, they don't. Now, just last week, I sent yeah, a Yeah, but what did you send? Flowers or a telegram? Or the telegram, of course. Ah, just as I thought. You didn't really send flowers at all. No one can do that. <laughs> this morning, I phoned a begonia to my sister in Philadelphia, and it arrived in perfect condition. Not a telegram, mind you, but the actual flower. Now, Professor, why don't you go home and take a nice little rest? No, no, no. I, I always nap from three to five, and it's not even, not even two yet. Besides, I haven't finished telling you about my deatmospheric chamber. Your what? My deatmospheric chamber. <laughs> oh, that's how I can send flowers by wire, and and I can send people too. Oh, now this is just a little far-fetched, even for your imagination. No, it's very simple, Miss Lane. You see, you're not much of anything except air. Oh, thank you. If I took all the air out of your body, you'd be nothing but atoms. And you'd be small enough to set up housekeeping on the head of a pin. Girl could save a lot of rent that way. And train fare. Once I started your atoms vibrating, I could phone you any place you wanted to go, and you'd be there right away. Now, Professor. Oh, you don't believe me, do you? I'm afraid not. But, Miss Lane, I can prove it to you. Honestly, I can. Now, come to my workshop, please. I just can't, Professor. I have so much work to do. Yeah, but, but you'd be the first one. You, you'd make history. Thank you, but no thanks. Now, why don't you run along home and continue your work on that pick-proof lock? Oh, uh, I've already perfected that. Haven't you heard? Why, no. Congratulations. When do you put it on the market? Just as soon as I can invent a key to unlock it. Goodbye. Clippy Jones, a member of Ed Crowley's gang, is staying at Professor Pepperwinkle's boarding house. He is pondering how Crowley could come up with alibis for his men since Superman captured Garfield. Professor Pepperwinkle has just shown Clippy Jones the atmospheric chamber. Oh, oh, poor little atmospheric chamber. No one believes in you but me. Yes. Greetings, Professor Pepperwinkle. What's for dinner? Oh, I may never cook another dinner as long as I live. What's the matter? Oh, I can't seem to get anyone to... Clippy! Clippy, do you have some friend you haven't seen for a long time? Yes, uh, old Mo Bilkey. Where's old Mo now? Uh, Kansas City. Kansas City? <laughs> and, and how long since you've seen him? Too long. If you want to see him right now, I think I can arrange it. Yeah? How? <laughs> well, I'll show you. <laughs> I'll show you. Right this way. Right this way. Now, now, would you, uh, would you care to step inside? What for? Before I can telephone you to your friend in Kansas City, I have to take all the air out from in between your atoms and start you vibrating. Uh, uh, maybe some other time. Oh, please, Mr. Jones, it doesn't hurt. And you'll have such a nice visit with your friend. Please. Okay. <laughs> Anything for a gag. Yeah. Oh, what's the telephone number? Um, Atwood, uh, 4857. Atwood, 4857. Thank you, thank you. And uh, have a nice trip. <laughs> Atwood, Atwood, 4857. Long distance? Uh, get me Kansas City, please. Um, uh, Atwood, 4857. Yes, that's right. A person-to-person -person call. Mr. Mo Bilkey. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm coming, I'm coming. 
Hiya. Clippy! Yeah, Mo. It's me. At uh, least it feels like me. How? How'd you get here? I telephoned. Telephone? Now, that's not a normal way to travel. Maybe not. But you can't beat the prize. Hiya, Mo. A little weak in the knees. I better sit down. <laughs> Clippy later tells Crowley of Pepperwinkle's unusual machine. Ask me where I've been. Boss, go ahead. Ask me. Okay, okay, Mr. Bones, where you been? Kansas City. Well, what are you talking about? You ain't had time to get to Kansas City and back, not even if you went by jet both ways. I flew back, but I went by phone. Brain, get him a cup of coffee. Sounds like he needs it. Yeah, boss. I know it sounds crazy, boss, but it happened. Sorry, Cliffy, but I ain't buying it. If you don't believe me, ask Mo. I went to visit him. But Mo's in Kansas City. I know it. I'm trying to tell you I've just been there. With the help of a little gadget invented by Professor Pepperwinkle. Yeah, yeah, sure. For phoning people to Kansas City. Or any place they want to go. It's the greatest. You know, if you're not nuts, I just got an idea how we might save this whole operation. Yeah, boss? Yeah. Listen, you take the brain and I down to meet this professor so that we can fix it up so we'll live with him. Posing as Clippy's brothers, Ed Crowley and Benny the Brain managed to rent a room from Professor Pepperwinkle. Come in. Hi, Professor. Oh, Mr. Jones, how was your trip? Great. I can't thank you enough. Because of you, I got reunited with my brothers. Shake hands with Big Brother Ed. I'm very glad to know you, Professor. And my little brother, the Brain. I'm very happy to know you both. The best brothers a guy ever had. I hadn't seen him for years. One of those silly misunderstandings, you know? Then when I run across him in Kansas City, boy, was I ever glad to see him. And we decided we ought to all come back together. Yeah, we'd like to be one happy family together again. And we owe it all to you, Professor. Oh, you're more than welcome, I'm sure. Well, there's only one problem now, and that is where we're gonna live. Well, I think you can find something comfortable. Uh, you don't understand, Professor. After all this time, naturally we want to be together. I was wondering about that extra room you got next to mine. Well, uh, I really hadn't planned on renting it out. I like things nice and quiet, you know, the way they are now. Uh, for my inventing, you know. Oh, we're quiet as a couple of mice, Professor. I'm my little brother, the brain here. You know what he does for a hobby. What? Well, all day long he chases butterflies. And how much noise can you make with a butterfly net? And, and big brother Ed, why, all he cares about is, uh, <coughs> Flower arrangements. Right, Ed? Right, Clippy. Here's a month's rent in advance. You'll be doing the Jones family a big favor if you take it. Yeah. Mom would have wanted us all to stay together. Well, all right, gentlemen. Now, now if you'll excuse me, I'll just go and see about linens. So far, so good. If uh, I'm going to pull that job at the Fifth Street Bank, I'd better get going. I'll meet you back here at 3. That's when he takes his nap. In the past two days, both Clippy and the Brain have pulled off robberies for Ed Crowley. However, reliable witnesses place them in San Francisco and Chicago, respectively, mere minutes after their crimes are committed. As Clark Kent goes to speak with Inspector Henderson... Oh, hello, Bill. Why so gloomy? 
Clippy Jones held up the Fifth Street Bank this afternoon at quarter to three. Was he recognized? Yes, by two of the tellers. Come on. Once you catch him, it'll be easy to get a conviction. Not this time, Kent. You know where Clippy was at five after three? No, I don't. In San Francisco, visiting the chief of police. Oh, Bill, that's impossible. San Francisco is hours away. Uh, maybe with someone that just looked like Clippy. <laughs> I'm afraid not. I had the chief run a test of the fingerprints found on the desk. They were Clippy's, all right. Huh. Well, maybe the bank tellers were mistaken. I hope so. If not, this is the spookiest operation I've ever run into. Yeah, I see what you mean. Lois understands that the atmospheric chamber has been used for nefarious purposes. All right. Sure. Yeah, I'll be right over, Bill. What was that all about? Well, the brain held up the jewelry store at the corner of Elm and Sixth. He's one of Ed Crawley's gang, isn't he? That's right. Now, he pulled the job at quarter of three. And the owner positively identified him. So what's the problem? Oh, no problem at all, except that he was identified in Chicago at ten minutes after three. Well, that's impossible. Maybe so. It's the second time it's happened in two days. I'm going down to headquarters and talk to Bell. I'll see you all in the morning. Bye, Goodbye, Mr. Kent. Well, I better be getting back to work myself. Wait a minute, Jimmy. What is it, Miss Lane? The other day, Professor Pepperwinkle stopped by here. With another one of his crazy inventions? It may not be so crazy after all. What was it? Well, he has a gadget that he can phone people any place they want to go, and they get there right away. That sounds like the professor. But just suppose it works, Jimmy. I may be dense, Miss Lane, but I don't know what you mean. Well, it could explain a lot of those mysterious alibis. Oh. Well, say after a robbery, the people go back to the professor and get themselves phoned right out of town. Oh, the professor may be a little bit crazy, but he wouldn't get mixed up with anything illegal. Unless he didn't know what he was mixed up in. I see what you mean. First of all, I'd like to find out if that invention really works. Would you look up his phone number for me, Jimmy? Sure, Miss Clay. Peppers, pepper, corn, pepperwinkle, greenleaf, 8975. Thanks, Jimmy. She makes an appointment to see Professor Pepperwinkle demonstrate the machine in the morning. Leaving a note for Clark, Lois intends to bring Jimmy Olsen with her. Lois and Jimmy have arrived at Professor Pepperwinkle's home. In addition to, to the eccentric scientist, they are greeted by Crowley, Clippy, and the Brain. Good morning, Professor Pepperwinkle. Hi, Professor. Oh, won't you come in, please? Thank you. I'm so glad I didn't miss the chance of being the very first one to try your new invention. But I'm afraid you have, Miss Lane. Oh? My tenant, Mr. Jones, had a very nice trip to Kansas City just the other day. Not Mr. Clippy Jones. Yes, and he ran into his, his two long-lost brothers, and now they're all staying here together. Oh, such nice chaps. One of them, uh, one of them collects flowers, and the other uh, arranges butterflies. Well, I, I mean, I guess it's just the other way around. What are these brothers' names? Well, Jones, I guess, just like Mr. Clippy's. Well, no, sir, she means their first names. Well, well, now, let's see. Uh, uh, there's Big Brother Edward and Little Brother the Brain. Oh! Oh, here they are now. I'd like you to meet the Jones boys. Now, this is Miss Lane and Jimmy Olsen. How do you How do? You do? Uh, have you caught any good butterflies today? Oh, my little brother, the brain's had an awful headache, Professor. He can't even think about butterflies without getting dizzy. Oh, dear me. I'm sorry to hear that. Well, we thought maybe you might have something to make him feel better. Why, of course I do. I'll get it right away. Well, thanks a lot, Professor. Uh, what are you two doing here? Might ask the same of you, Mr. Crowley. 
Must be some mistake. Her name's Joan. Don't try to lie, Mr. Crowley. I've seen enough of your pictures to know who you are. She's pretty smart. You can say that again. She's got it all figured out, all by herself. Jimmy. Mm, that's very interesting, kid. What has she got all figured out? Uh, nothing. Never mind. Anything I don't like, it's somebody who starts to say something and then don't finish it. You leave him alone. You'll get in plenty of trouble if Mr. Kent finds out about this. I got news for you, Miss Lane. He ain't gonna find out about it. At least, not from you. What do you mean? We've arranged for you to take a little trip. You may be gone for a long time. All right, shove him in it. I'm sure there were more of us here before. Oh, you're right, Professor. Absolutely right, as usual. Miss Lane and Jim Olson just left. Well, they did. Oh, dear, dear. But I was going to give Miss Lane a demonstration. Clark Kent calls Inspector Henderson. He will send some men to Professor Pepperwinkle's lab to apprehend the Crowley gang. Meanwhile, the long-distance operator revealed that a call was made to Alaska today from Professor Pepperwinkle's phone. Flying at great speeds, Superman has stopped the atmospheric chamber's transfer of Lois and Jimmy to the Yukon simply by breaking the telephone cable on which their atoms were traveling. Jimmy and Lois reappear in front of Superman in time to wait for the next bus. With his friend safe and Ed Crowley in police custody, the Man of Steel flies away. Inspector Henderson and Clark Kent are in the latter's office discussing the Crowley adventure. Thanks to you, we got all of them, Clark. No thanks to me, Bill. Lois is the one you should thank. She was the one who caught on first, you know. Come in. Oh, gentlemen. Gentlemen, I, I thought you'd like to know I've destroyed my deatmospheric chamber so you won't be having any more trouble. Now, Professor, why did you do that? To tell the truth, I couldn't afford the long-distance phone bill. Ooh, this month it's a whopper. All right, like I mentioned in the opening, this is, you know, not the greatest episode of The Adventures of Superman that you're going to find out there, and most of the episodes on Season 5 generally are not. But what makes this episode stand out, at least to me, is the appearance of Professor Pepperwinkle. They're Silver age comic plots, and even if the storylines don't make the most sense in the world, the acting of Phil Teed as the eccentric Pepperwinkle and the just the zaniness of his adventures just really uh, makes for a fun episode, so... One of those episodes where, you know, I don't want to say turn your brain off, but just sit down and kind of just enjoy a fun ride. That's really the best way you can handle a Professor Pepperwinkle episode. So, the episode starts off with Bill Henderson calling in a tip to Clark about a robbery. You know, they couldn't catch the crook, and I'm not sure if he was really intending for Clark to change into Superman or get in touch with Superman. Obviously, Henderson doesn't know, or maybe he does, that Clark Kent is Superman. If you watch the series from the beginning to the end and you... You know, at least try to give the characters a little bit of credit. You know, you would think that the lowest show that she suspects that Clark is Superman, but there are times when I think Henderson knows the truth and just isn't saying anything. But that's neither here nor there. It's common knowledge that Clark Kent is the liaison to Superman, and uh, Henderson calls Clark, and Superman is off to the races. 
So he he lands in front of the car, which the police couldn't keep up with because it was going 120. I find it hard to believe that these crooks have better vehicles than the police, but they do. Superman stops the car short, and that scene ends. We really don't see him do very much beyond that. And then we cut right to Lois and Clark's office for some reason. Maybe her office is in the shop or something. I don't know. Maybe she couldn't. She locked herself out. Who knows? She sometimes seems like Lois spends more time in Clark's office than her own. She opens the door. Not because she was intending to answer the door, but because she was leaving the office. And there is our favorite recurring mad scientist. Or absent-minded professor, whatever you prefer. Professor Pepperwinkle. And when I say favorite, he's my favorite, and I hope he's your favorite too. He definitely shows up often enough to assume that he is the favorite of the producers. Phil Teed made six overall appearances in The Adventures of Superman, five as Professor Pepperwinkle, so. And the sixth, obviously, was the shop owner Willie in The Seven Souvenirs, so. The producers definitely saw something in him that he they liked, and which made them create this role for Teed and bring him back five times in that role. His five outings as Professor Pepperwinkle makes Phil Teed, and I may or may not have mentioned this before, I don't actually know, but he does hold the record for the most appearances as the same character, you know, outside of the main cast. He plays the role five times. The most frequent guest star, obviously, is Ben Weldon with eight appearances, but each time he appeared on the show, he played a different character. So, anyway, back to the show. There's a funny gag here at the door, as Lois says his name, obviously, and uh, Professor Pepperwinkle looks around as if somebody else is Professor Pepperwinkle. And then he comes in, he's looking for Clark, and he needs to check under under his desk for the, for the mild-mannered reporter. I don't exactly know why he would be there, but looking under the desk does not phase Lois in the slightest, because, you know, she figures Clark would hide under his desk or something, I don't know. And then he, you know, he kind of proves his absent-mindedness, and he asks Lois what he can do for her. That's not usually how it works. He's there because he wanted to see them and to tell Lois about his new invention. You know, he sent them flowers over the phone to his sister, and they made it there in one piece. He, apparently, he actually sent the flowers to his sister in Philadelphia. He didn't, you know, send a telegram to order the flowers and have them delivered. He actually sent flowers by phone. And he also has something that's called a decompressing chamber, and that doesn't sound like it can be a good thing. I mean... When you think of decompression, you're thinking of, you know, the air being sucked out of an airplane or something like that. So, you know, putting people in a decompressing chamber, you know, doesn't sound like something that uh, you really want to have done to yourself. So Lois is clearly humoring the professor as he speaks. And, you know, at the end, she admits to not believing him. And, you know, why would you, you know? Why would you not believe Professor Pepperwinkle? The last time we saw him was, I want to say, topsy-turvy. As, uh, he invented a device that screwed around everybody's sense of equilibrium and made them all think they were upside down. So... That worked. Why would she think this doesn't work, despite the uh, sheer impossibility of it all? So, But anyway, Lois is turning him away. She doesn't believe he can do what he says, and she's got better things to do for now. So, and then there's another funny bit, as uh, Lois tells uh, Pepperwinkle to go back to work on the pick-proof lock, which apparently needs to be invented. Uh, if you remember the episode Jimmy the Kid, Pruitt couldn't get into Clark Kent's files because... His cabinet was made out of case-hardened steel and had a pick-proof lock. But apparently he did his job so well that he has to invent a key to open it. Nice work, Professor. So we move right along to our criminals of the episode. Here's a man with a, who loves playing with his yo-yo. As he gets reports that his men have been arrested, this this is Ed Crowley. And he is going to set the world record uh, for uh, longest yo-yo game or whatever. Too bad there's no one around to validate his claim. In order to get anything 
input into the Guinness Book of World Records. You actually need to have somebody from the record book on hand to validate that you've done what you say. Anybody can call in and say they've played the longest game of yo-yo ever, but there needs to be somebody there to prove it, and not just the brain. So, and apparently uh, Clippy, one of Phil, one of Ed Crowley's men, lives at Professor Pepperwinkle's boarding house because of, you know, plot. So there's a connection to our other plot, and they need some alibis. Well, they're going to get some. And then we got another pointless scene uh, with Lois and Clark, and Clark mentions he can only be in one place at a time, which we're going to find out. It appears that our criminals, even though they're only one place at a time, that uh, they're covering a lot of ground. So Clippy shows up at the professor's lab, and uh, Pepperwinkle is showing his invention to anyone who will listen. Uh, apparently, Professor Pepperwinkle has not seen uh, the Machine That Could Plot Crimes episode. This is exactly how Uncle Oscar got himself in trouble by running his mouth about his invention to somebody living in his boarding house. So uh, the professor is going to show Clippy that it works, and he's going to send him to visit his friend Mo in Kansas City. Clippy's not too fond of the idea of having all the air sucked out of his atoms, but he's going to give it a shot anyway. I'm not sure I would, but, you know, he's a trusting guy, I guess. He figures it's not going to work, so in he goes. And then we find out that the machine does work. You know, we got a rattling phone and a puff of smoke, and Clippy is in Kansas City with Mo Bilkey. Mo is just some guy uh, living in a ho- what looks like a hotel room uh, in his pajamas. I'm not sure if he's uh, what time of day it is, but I thought it was kind of during the day. Professor Pepperwinkle doesn't seem like the type of person who'd be up late at night, so I don't know. Maybe uh, Mo Bigley likes to sleep all day. Who knows? So anyway, uh, Clippy comes back home to uh, Ed Crowley and uh, tells him about his experience. Crowley thinks he's drunk, but you know we've seen, we know he's telling the truth. But it kind of gives Crowley an idea of how to save their operation. Now they have a way to get around faster than Superman can. And they found a way to make their plan work. They conned Pepperwinkle into renting out an extra room that he wasn't planning to rent out by pretending to be brothers. Who will, who have come together after many years of not being together. And because of one of those family misunderstandings. So they tell their sob story to Professor Pepperwinkle and he goes off and he gets them some bedsheets. Isn't he a nice professor? And you know, to prove they're quiet, we have... Interesting hobbies for our criminals, not that they actually partake in these hobbies. The brain chases butterflies, and Ed only cares about flower arrangements. I'm not sure if I can see the brain, who's not a small man by any stretch of the imagination, can, uh, will chase butterflies around with a net. Hopefully he's doing that outside, if he's going to do that at all. I wouldn't want him to chase butterflies in a room, might knock a lamp down or something. And, you know, I'm sure you can't make too much noise with flower arrangements. Not that, uh, Ed's going to be doing much about flower arrangements. He's all about the, uh, the thievery. Clippy is going to pull his job, and he'll return at 3 p.m. because that's when Pepperwinkle takes his nap. We know that because he never misses an opportunity to tell somebody when he's taking a nap. Clippy comes back to the lab, and he's telephoned to San Francisco. Did to pick up some rice before he comes back to uh, Metropolis, you know, the uh, San Francisco treat. Now, I like this effect to show the phone travel. It's basically a shot of, you know, utility wires over the road, and uh, painted over the shot of the wires is uh, kind of a, a lightning bolt, kind of show electric current. To show that it's active and that uh, our characters are traveling by telephone. The phony alibi. Not phony as fake, phony as in over the phone. In case you didn't figure that out already on your own. So, eventually Clippy appears in San Francisco. And now we have Henderson looking awful down. Clippy held up a bank, but then five minutes later he was talking to a police chief in San Francisco. Which is, I'm going to say it's on the other side of the country. Metropolis is generally considered to be on the east coast of the United States. And San Francisco, as we all know, is on the west coast in California. That's more than mere hours away. That is, I guess, five or six hour flight. I, I don't know. I believe I flew out from New York, New Jersey to Las Vegas once in about five hours. So maybe 
San Francisco is six. I don't know. Anyway, the brain held up a jewelry store, and then he was in Chicago a half hour later. So all of a sudden, these guys are out of town shortly after their robberies. So that's enough to perplex the police. And when Clark leaves, Lois connects these robberies to uh, Professor Pepperwinkle's invention, which she kind of disregarded when he showed up at her office earlier. And, you know, now she's thinking maybe there's something to it. And she makes an appointment to go see the good professor. And obviously from their room, the our, the criminals can see what's going on. And Ed doesn't like the idea of Lois and Jimmy visiting the professor. They're probably the one or two people that can put the kibosh on his plan. So I can see why he wouldn't like the fact that they're coming to visit. Lois apparently loses, lost the opportunity to be the first person to test the invention. As we all saw, at first we saw Clippy when he went to visit Mo, But Clippy has since used it again and the brain has used it. So she would be the third person to travel by telephone if that's what she chooses to do. You know, to show that the professor can't get these things right, he kind of switched around the hobbies of the other brothers, quote-unquote. You know, just part of the comedy. One of them creates butterflies, and the other one chases flower arrangements. I'm not exactly sure how one goes about chasing a flower arrangement, but I'm glad that Professor Pepperwinkle realized he kind of messed that up. Eventually, Lois identifies Crowley when he comes into the lab, and uh, Jimmy does what he does best and sticks his foot in his mouth and tells them that she has to figure it all out, which just gets them in trouble. And, you know, Crowley sends them to Alaska. And I like this neat bit of editing here. As Pepperwinkle says he was about to give Lois and Jimmy a demonstration, we cut immediately to the phone travel graphic of the lightning bolt. And they're on the move. And this is when Clark visits the professor and finds out about the call to Alaska. Meanwhile, Lois and Jimmy are moving at the absolute slowest phone call you have ever heard. I don't know how much time has passed, but enough time for Clark to go from his office to Pepperwinkle's. Lois and Jimmy are still going. Superman, meanwhile, catches up with them at a telephone pole somewhere. They just kind of appear out of nowhere once he disconnects the phone cable. So they're not going to make it to Alaska. I'm not sure where they are, but they're going to hitch a ride back to Metropolis from somewhere. And uh, then we get this little ending with Henderson and Clark, who deflects the credit to Lois, and she's the one who actually figured out that the criminals were using Professor Pepperwinkle's machine to commit their crimes. And then Pepperwinkle comes in and says he destroyed the machine, not because it was co-opted by crooks, but because the phone calls were too expensive. Now, long-distance calling is obviously not something that's as much of an issue these days with in the days of nationwide service plans where you basically pay a flat rate and you can call wherever you want. But way back in the day, you know, you'd just about pay for every phone call you made per call. You really want to stay on the phone for as little as possible. I mean, if you would talk to somebody long distance, you know, for a long time every day, you know, you'd run up quite the phone bill. And the person who paid the bill was generally the person who made the call, not the person on the receiving end. Could you imagine if you called somebody and they had to pay too? Then that would, they wouldn't be very happy with you. (laughs) You know, I remember back when I was in high school, you know, there were certain exchanges that I guess were in one circle, I guess. But if you called somebody in another circle, you know, you had to pay like, I don't know. 10 cents a minute or something like that. So if you called him for a long time, it would head up. But what was weird is, you know, my friend, I guess I want to say his name was Mark. You know, he and I lived in the same circle and our friend Justin did not. And it was just very strange that, you know, if Mark called Justin, you know, maybe they were at the most three miles apart. But because they were in separate circles from Mark, it was a long distance call. Meanwhile, I could call Mark. I probably lived seven or eight miles away from him and it was basically a free local call because he and i are in the same zone circle just kind of one of those eccentricities of how phone charges work i'm not sure how my i mean i don't make any international calls but you know my cell phone seems to be a uh, 
flat rate. That, as they say, is that. So, Pepperwinkle is nice little, is kind of the nice little ending on a you know, not-so-great episode. But like I mentioned, Pepperwinkle's invention makes it memorable. And Phil Teed is so great in the role that he makes it worthwhile. Now, another disappointment is that Superman saves Lois and Jimmy, but we never get to see the criminals get arrested. Henderson just you know, reports it to Clark at the end. You know, not really a great way to get the villains out of the story. So, that's that. I'm going to take a quick break, play a promo, then I'm going to come back with the Prince Albert coat. Hang around, folks. It's a small world after all. It's a small world. Great comics come in all shapes and sizes. Coming soon from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It's Digest Cast, a new show dedicated to our beloved pocket-sized treasures from that bygone era of the 70s and 80s. Hosted by the Fire and Water podcast team of Rob and Shag, and we'll be joined from time to time by special guests. It's Digest Cast, because big things come in small packages. Coming soon to the Fire and Water podcast network. All right, welcome back, folks. We're going to head right into The Prince Albert Goat. Writer was Leroy H. Zarin, and director was Harry Gerstead. Guest cast included Raymond Hatton as great-grandfather Jackson, Stephen Wooten as Bobby Jackson, Phil Arnold as Q-Ball, Dan White as Mike, Frank Fenton as Mortimer Vanderlip, Ken Christie as Mr. McCoy, and Claire Dubray as Mrs. Craig, and Jack Finch as Thomas Summerfield. And now for our synopsis, brought to you by supermanhomepage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. Levy City has suffered flooding recently. A clothing drive has been set up in Metropolis to help those in need. Young Bobby Jackson has gotten permission from his great-grandfather to donate items. Bobby has bundled some things up when two men named Q-Ball and Mike pick them up. Yep, this is it. Now listen, Q-Ball, I get first pick of the stuff this time. Shh, not so loud, pal. You want the customers to hear? Don't grab for nothing until we pull around the corner. We got a nice little racket, Mike. Be careful. Okay, okay. That's right, kid. I got all the stuff ready. Come on in. Here it is. I got a lot, didn't I? I sure bet it'll help those poor people in the flood area. Ah, you did a fine job, son. Hey, you got a real nice dog there, kid. And thanks for the fine duds. You're welcome. I only wish I had more. Yeah, these are real fine things. Hey, how about these, Sonny? Oh, no. Those are great gramps. Well, bye. 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 Come on, Butch. While Mike and Q-Ball do drop the material off at the various relief organizations, they are using this tragedy to cover the fact that they also steal from the charitable people. In the meantime, Bobby is overjoyed that he was able to do a good deed. I took him. <laughs> I took him. I jumped. I jumped. Two men and a king. Oh, I swear to goodness. I blasted him just like General Lee did them blue boys down there at Bull Run. 
I had a good day, too. Yeah? The relief truck came right over and picked up the old clothes like they really needed them. <laughs> I got rid of all my old stuff and some junk you had in the closet. Junk? What junk? An old sweater, a straw hat, that funny old coat that was in the trunk, a pair of shoes. My... My what? My... My old coat? My old coat? Gee, great gramps, it was so old. With the big lapels and funny buttons, and it was so long, way down to... My Prince Albert coat? <laughs> Who were the people? What place did you take them to? Why? What's wrong, great gramps? Come on. We got to hurry. We got to hurry. Bobby. You stay here and watch the house. Come on, thank you. You know where they took it to? I'm sorry, Mr. Jackson, but I checked with our shipping room and everything picked up in the early afternoon. It's already gone out. Where to? Where to? Where was it sent, ma'am? Well, that's almost impossible to say. Some place in the flood district, that's where it went. Come on, Bobby. We gotta find it. We just got to. But why, Mr. Jackson? Why are you so upset? Wouldn't you be upset, too, if that was your coat, ma'am? And in the lining was your whole life savings? $10,000 in cash? Oh, no. Oh, you poor soul. In the coat? All that? But why leave so much money in an old coat? Because I don't like banks. No how. It's all my fault. All the years you've been doing without great gramps. Oh, no, no. We've been getting by, Bobby. My pension's been enough. Now I was saving it for your schooling. To send you to college. Then have enough to give you a start in life, whatever you mind to do, like, like being a doctor or something. Well, I'd say it was almost impossible. Like looking for a needle in a haystack. But if you'll give me until tomorrow morning, Mr. Jackson, I'll see if I can find a clue as to where to look. Well, thank you, ma'am. I think I'll be going home now and get myself a bit of rest. Come on, son. Can you get home all right, Great Gramps? Oh, yes, I can. I know where we can get help. Believing Superman can help, Bobby Jackson has gone to the Daily Planet in hopes of contacting him. Lois Lane has written an article about the missing coat that is accompanied by a photo of Bobby taken by Jimmy Olsen. The next day, Clark Kent learns that the Jackson's clothing was taken to Levy City. Here, Great Gramps. You haven't had anything to eat. You gotta eat, Great Gramps. Please? Oh, no, Bobby. I... I just ain't hungry. We'll get the money back. Miss Lane said Superman would help. I've been planning this surprise for my whole lifetime. Gosh, Great Gramps, with all the banks and... But I don't like banks. When I want my money, I want it. Sure, sure, Great Gramps. You're right. No, I ain't. If I was, I'd still have my money. Hi, Mr. Olson. Hi, Bobby. Uh, Mr. Jackson? Yes, ma'am. Your coat went to Levy City. We're on our way to get it. Well, that's mighty nice of you, ma'am. But I doubt if you'll ever find it. Anyway, we're going to give it a good try. Can I go, Miss Lane? I know what it looks like, and maybe... We'll be driving all night, Bobby. You're better off here. I can sleep in the car. Please let me go. Think of the shot I could get when we find the coat and the money. I don't know, Jimmy. What do you think, Mr. Jackson? Well, I reckon he'd kill if he didn't mind, too. Thanks, Craig Gramps.
Hey, I didn't hear a whistle. A dog whistle. Too high-pitched for human ears. Takes a hearing as sharp as Butch's to get it. You take good care of Great Gramps, Butch. Let's go. Lois, Jimmy, and Bobby head there to get Great-Grandfather Jackson's savings back. Unfortunately, Cuball and Mike also know of the money thanks to Lois's piece in the planet. What the people at the relief agency don't know won't hurt them. We made 18 bucks on a side. Not a bad day. See what happens when you listen to me? Yeah, I listen to you. $10,000 worth. Huh? Says right there, wanted my grandfather's coat. $10,000 hidden and given away coat. Well, now, what about the coat, I ask him? Well, it's too old, says he. Well, it wasn't too old to hold 10,000 bucks. Ah, uh, shut up. Now, we was the ones that loaded that stuff. What truck did we throw it in? Oh, yeah. Think, man, think. Well, let me see. Uh, oh, oh, I got it. I got it. Levy City. <laughs> Chum, we got big business out of town. Fast freight to Levy City? And 10,000 clams. Well, leave us leave. The thieves intend to take the cash by any means necessary. It seems like everyone is searching for Great Grandpa's Prince Albert coat. Lois, Jimmy, and Bobby are desperate to get the savings money for the granddad. At the same time, stage actor Mortimer Vanderlip needs it for a performance because he lost all of his other costumes in the flood. Vanderlip here. Mortimer Vanderlip. Yes? Star of stage, screen, and riverboat. Performer before the crowned heads of Europe in the inscrutable Orient. Well, what can I do for you? I'm totally ruined. A pitiful victim of the raging floods. My one-man show, an artistic performance, I assure you, is scheduled for Eyesville this evening. In fleeing the turbulent waters, my trunk was washed away. All of my costumes were in it. Oh, I see. That's too bad. But how can I be of any... All of my characters are from Dickens. One of your assistants stated that in this morning's shipment of clothing, he saw a Prince Albert coat. Precisely what I'm in dire need of. Prince Albert? That might be in the reject pile. Just a moment. Well, thank you. Here it is. Will this one do? Oh, the gods are smiling on me once again. The audience at Ivesville and Mortimer Vanderlip are eternally grateful, my good man. Thank you, thank you. Worse yet, Mike and Cuball want to take the cash for their own purposes. Mortimer Vanderlip has the Prince Opera coat for his show in Ivesville tonight. Lois, Jimmy, and Bobby are about to go there when they meet up with Cuball and Mike at a relief clothing depot. The pair of criminals agree to drive with them to Ivesville. However, they really lock the trio in a smokehouse that belonged to Cuball's brother-in-law. The walls are concrete, the door is solid steel, and the chimney is too small for even Bobby to escape. Having learned from Metropolis Police Inspector Bill Henderson of Mike and Cuball's prison records, Clark Kent has set out to look for Lois, Jimmy, and Bobby. Mr. McCoy of the aforementioned clothing depot tells Kent of Ivesville and of an urgent emergency. The Levy City Dam is about to give way. Now, there are two jobs for Superman, and it looks like the Man of Steel will need every power and ability at his disposal if he is to prevent another flood from ravaging Levy City, rescue Bobby, Jimmy and Lois, and stop Mike Cuball from stealing the money from the Prince Albert coat. As Superman stops water from breaking the Levy City dam with some support girders, Bobby blows the whistle he uses to call his dog Butch. It emits a sound that only Butch can hear. Metropolis Marvel's keen ears also pick up the noise as he searches for his friends. He crashes through the wall to rescue them. Superman! Am I glad to see you? Well, you can thank Bobby's whistle for that. Your ears are deaf? Why, sure. Holy Superman, you could have come in through the door. Well, I know I could have, Jimmy, but, uh, well, this seemed a little more spectacular. Wow, through a solid brick wall. 
Now, would you nice people mind telling me exactly what's been going on around here? Well, well those guys wanted to get back and forth. One at a time. One at a time. Now that Bobby, Lois, and Jimmy are free, there's only the matter of finding the Prince Albert coat before Q-Ball and Mike get their hands on the money within it. Mike and Q-Ball have been forced to take drastic action in Mortimer Vandalip's dressing room. For the last time, gentlemen, in spite of your grandfather's sentimental attachment to this coat, it's a matter of a livelihood to me. I refuse to part with it. As far as I'm concerned, I might even say it's worth its weight in gold. Well, uh, you can say that again, mister. But I'll bring it back. All Grandpa wants to do is take one more look. I promise, mister. Thy word, my lord, is noble, but only twixt thy conscience and thyself. Tis not for me to judge. Well, good day, gentlemen. I have to prepare for an artistic triumph this evening. Yeah, why don't we quit fooling around with him, just slug him and take the coat? I guess we'll have to. If you choose to use force, you'll doubtless prevail, but I assure you I'll resist with the last ounce of my strength. That will not be necessary, Mr. Vandelet. Mr., uh, are you, you really Superman? Yes, I am. I knew you were talking to get us in trouble. <laughs> Superman? You arrived in the nick of time, sir. Well, as you can see, I had very little to do with it, actually. However, would you mind calling the police and having them pick these two up? They have a great deal to answer for. A great pleasure, I assure you. Uh, one more thing about your coat, sir. Its owner would like to see it for just a few moments. However, I promise I'll have it back in time for this evening's performance. Your word, my dear sir, is quite a different thing to that of those two rogues. You may have the coat, and welcome. You're very kind. It is returned to Grandpa Jackson long enough for him to take the $10,000 out of the lining. You just can't win from an old fighting man. Now, let me see. There. There. Oh, I did But, Mr. Jackson, why, this is Confederate money. Yes, I know. But I knew it would come into its own sooner or later. Just a matter of time, that's all. Mr. Jackson, sir, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but I'm afraid it's worthless. Worth it? Well, as I said, I, I was saving it to give Bobby a good education. Mr. Jackson? No, sir, that's Mr. Jackson right over there. Oh. Mr. Jackson, yes, I'm sir. Thomas Summerfield, president of the Carryville, Alabama National Bank. Our paper happened to carry your story, and I'm happy to say it enabled us to finally locate you, something I've been trying to do for years. Here you are, sir. $5,000. And 62 cents. Before he enlisted, your daddy deposited in our bank, you being a babe in arms, several hundred dollars in gold for you. That's it, sir with interest all these years. Well, I'll be dang jiggered. And after the way I've been talking about banks all the time, I feel I owe you an object apology, sir. Oh, not at all, sir. It's our pleasure to get this straightened out. Yep. I mean, it wasn't for the newspapers and Superman. Now, wait just a minute, Mr. Jackson. Let's get the right start here. It all began with Bobby, because he wanted to do a good deed. He wanted to help people. And that's what I call being real super, Bobby. Now, if you'll excuse me, I must return this to Mr. Vanderlip. 
Oh, and uh, don't wait up for me. I may stop to see the show. <sighs> Let me tell you something. This episode has a dubious honor in which it is the start of kind of a poor stretch in season five. At least over the course of the next three episodes that are coming to mind immediately. This episode, the next episode, which is The Stolen Elephant, and Mr. Zero are really episodes that, I guess when people watch this show, they really don't look forward to in any way whatsoever. So, this is a dubious stretch in The Adventures of Superman. You know, this episode is, you know, it's a simple premise. Kid wants to do a good deed, and he does one, you know, and it leads to good things for his family eventually, but it could be bad as everybody's kind of going around uh, chasing $10,000 because Grandpa stuck it in his garbage coat that he doesn't wear anymore, you know, and it's kind of, at the end, everything turns out to be pointless because the money is confederate, but still, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, banker plot device comes in with the goods. I mean, they don't have all the money, but... They have to get half of it back because the great-grandfather's father did something a hundred years ago. Not an episode that I or anyone I know really look back on with a great deal of fondness, but here we go. Starts with a young boy watching TV, and he hears a news report about how clothing is needed to help you know, the victims of a flood from Levy City. I guess the Levies didn't hold. <laughs> so he is, you know, Bobby's doing a noble thing, and he wants to donate some old clothes to help those in need. You know, there is certainly nothing wrong with that. More kids today need to kind of feel that civic responsibility to help those who have suffered from major disaster. Maybe some adults can learn something from Bobby's example, too. So there's definitely no fault on Bobby here for wanting to do the right thing, which is to give to those less fortunate. The only problem here is that his great-grandfather could give less than a damn about what he's doing. So Bobby goes and he puts together his package for goodwill and he finds a very impressive looking brown coat, but apparently Bobby's not impressed enough to keep it, so he puts it with his stuff. And then we meet the uh, the relief workers who are picking up the clothes, and I guess even flood victims aren't safe from the unsavory sort, as these two guys who are working for the relief outfit, you know, they skim a little bit off the top for themselves. They still bring the clothes to the depot, but you know what, if they find, I guess if they find any money or whatnot in a pocket or something, they keep that for themselves. I guess they're considering it a finder's fee. I'm not sure they're actually selling any of this old stuff, but they are, you know, kind of making a little bit of money off of the donations. Now, for some reason, the this actor playing cue ball reminds me a bit of Joe Pesci. You know, they're both short and have similar facial features, but, you know, obviously there's no relation between the two actors. But, you know, just, I guess the, the man, the Phil Arnold's overall profile, the short stature and the, uh, and the facial features remind me of him. But, and because he's kind of shaking down people. You know, Joe Pesci also played, you know, when he was playing mobsters, he would play, uh, you know, kind of unsavory characters, so. Fun note there. Anyway, moving on. More Bobby. You know, apparently uh, Great Gramps had a good day of playing checkers with somebody. Bobby can't wait to tell Great Gramps about the great day he had getting rid of all of his old crap. He's also quite proud of giving away Great Gramps' old crap. And suddenly he's concerned when Bobby mentions the coat. And Great Gramps looks like he's about to have a heart attack. Apparently we need to get the Prince Albert coat back. And uh, this old man with a cane looks like he's about to chase the truck down. And, uh... This old fool apparently left about $10,000 cash in an old coat. I guess if I did that, I would be desperate to, to find it too, if it were my life savings. Of course, I would have put it in the bank, and not a junk closet, in an old coat. But he doesn't like banks, you know. He lived through the Great Depression, and he saw the banks fail, and uh, I guess that could shatter his trust in the banking institution. 
Now, I want to make a note here that it's almost seven minutes into the episode, and we're only seeing a familiar face now for the first time. That's too long before showing us our main cast. I mean, it's a 24-minute episode. Seven minutes is almost a third of the way through, and now we're just seeing Lois for the first time. Too long. Gotta get to our main Daily Planet staff quicker. Bobby is talking to Lois, and she's patronizing him, telling him it's not his fault. And uh, for you kids out there, and you grown-ups too, next time you're about to give away your grit cramps to dusty old coat, check the pockets. You never know what you might find. And if you're about to give away your own dusty old coat, check the pockets. Now, is it common knowledge that Clark Kent is Superman's press agent, that even this freckle-faced kid knows to check there? If that's the case, why even have a secret identity? One of the tropes from the show that seems to annoy me is that everybody seems to know that Clark Kent is the link to Superman. And so, Lois is going to write a story about how this kid gave away his grandfather's coat with a ton of money in it, and now we're going to tell the criminals, and maybe these two idiots should have checked the pockets too. And at first it seems as though Clark is trying to get Superman out of doing anything about this, but Clark gave Lois a wink as he leaves the office, and he sent off the pack, but he's changing into Superman. And apparently Jimmy is so preoccupied here, he's probably more worried about this, this coat than Bobby is. And we got a nice comment from Clark saying that he got out there the only way he knew. Says so little to them, but so much to us. Now, apparently Greg Gramps' belief is that starving to death is the answer because he's, you know, not really feeling hungry. And I guess I wouldn't have much of an appetite either if I had lost my life savings. But fortunately, I don't have much of a life savings to lose. So if I lost mine, it wouldn't be that much big of a deal. He's complaining about not having his money and he didn't put it in the bank because he wants his money when he wants it. But... Maybe he should have not hidden it where his grandson can find it. You know, why didn't he stuff it under his mattress like my grandmother used to do? Or put it in a shoebox somewhere, in, on, on the top shelf of a closet, where Bobby can't reach it? Why did he feel the need to sew it into the lining of, a, of an old coat? So, before they go to Levy City, Lois shows up to, at the Jackson's house to tell Great Gramps that they're going to get the coat as if she was going to the corner store for a carton of milk. And now, you know, in a strange uh, act of great-grandparenting, he's just going to let Bobby go into a flood zone with two complete strangers. I guess uh, he is so distraught over losing this coat that he will do just about anything. Bobby is armed with a dog whistle, and now we get to the educational portion of our show, where Bobby teaches Jimmy all about how a dog whistle is too high-pitched for humans to hear, and uh, they're off to the races. This Let's call this Chekhov's dog whistle, you know. If it's shown to you in Act 1, it's going to come into play in Act 3. It's just how dramatic writing works. So we go right to Levy City, which is suffering from this flood. A flood we never see, by the way, because this show can't really uh, have that kind of budget, even if it had some stock footage. So here's an actor telling a sob story about how he lost all of his stuff, but he needs a Prince Albert coat. And apparently, there was a, a Prince Albert coat in the reject pile. Let me repeat that, just in case you missed what I said. In a flood zone, something was in the reject pile. These people were flooded out of their homes and probably lost everything they owned. Are they really in a position to reject anything? Even a Prince Albert coat? So, here we are in Levy City, and fortunately this guy remembers who he gave the coat to, but he can't remember where he was going, and eventually he does remember, and uh, here come Mike and Q-Ball because they read the paper and they chased the coat with the $10,000 in it to Levy City. And now Q-Ball is trying to sell Bobby a load of goods here, but... Lois and Jimmy are not buying, especially Lois. Jimmy's kind of on the fence about the sale, but Lois is not really buying. But, you know, Lois is conned by Jimmy and Bobby, who fell for it. And, you know, they really should listen to what these people are saying to them. First rule is when someone tells you they're not pulling a fast one, they probably are. They're not going to help. You know, like I said, Lois is saying no, but Jimmy convinces her, and here they are with these two crooks, two complete strangers, and they're driving to Ivesville. Probably not the smartest thing they've done all day. 
Maybe we can blame it on the fatigue from driving all night. I don't know. So, anyway, Clark knows that they are probably in some kind of trouble. So, why isn't he flying off immediately? He's just kind of hanging around. So, now Lois, Bob, Jimmy, and Bobby are hijacked, and uh, Jimmy is sorry. Isn't he always? You would think at some point Jimmy would learn his lesson and not get them into these kinds of situations, but he just does because he's Jimmy. So, they're locked into this place that, uh, Q-Ball's brother-in-law just happened to smoke meat in. He, they happened to be near an area that Q-Ball knows because of uh, plot coincidence. There's a lot of plot coincidence throughout the course of this series, no doubt. So here's Clark now at the uh, relief depot, but the dam is going to break. It's kind of funny watching these kind of relief workers run from the f- from the floodwaters, but the, the only problem is uh, none of uh, the uh, relief workers saw Superman come out of the warehouse right behind them. So now we got our first look at the dam. Some dam. It looks... Like the gate to some kind of ancient kingdom. It's a very cheap looking set, but Superman, you know, puts some girders in front of the door and flies off. That's enough to hold back the massive flood. So as they're locked in, Bobby is considering the dog whistle. He blows it and uh, Superman hears in. For all the awfulness of this episode, it does have a nice shot of Superman breaking through the wall. And this is a memorable exchange between Superman and Jimmy when he points out that Superman could have used the door. But Superman p- considers the brick wall and says that was much more spectacular. It impresses Bobby, and it was a very impressive uh, crash through the wall. You know, the one thing George Reeves is very good at is crashing through walls. So, <laughs> and then when he asks everybody what's going on, everyone just kind of starts yammering at once. I guess uh, they haven't heard of one at a time, but Superman has to remind them. Now, I'm finding it funny here that the coat has gone through a bunch of people, but still no one has found the money. Apparently nobody has found $10,000 in cash. You know, hasn't felt the bump in the coat. You would think somebody would put it on and say, eh, you know, there's something, there's something heavy here inside one of the pockets. I wonder what it might be. But either nobody has uh, tried the coat on yet or th- by some inexplicable reason, nobody has found the right spot. So either way, Mortimer isn't giving it up to the two criminals. But Superman shows up and in anger, Mike punches out cue ball. And then when he realizes he's up against Superman, he faints. Very silly and Superman just kind of watches him fall to the ground. But, you know, Mortimer gives the coat to Superman because he can be trusted. That's nice. And there's nothing worse than listening to Mortimer Vandalip speak. You know, very stodgy, very uh, old. I don't know if I want to say old English, but he speaks very formally, and it's kind of annoying. As Lois would say in a later episode of Lois and Clark, ugh, actors. Like I said, Mortimer gives the coat to Superman because he can be trusted. And all of a sudden, you know, at the end, as Great Gramps is cutting the coat, I remember the ending of the Confederate money being absolutely worthless. So this whole episode was... Basically for nothing. At least the chase around in Levy City was absolutely for nothing. And then he got a knock on the door, which is the banker from Alabama. And uh, the guy opened, Superman opened the door and the guy looked at him and said, Mr. Jackson? Does this guy actually think Superman was Mr. Jackson? So all of a sudden, out of the blue, this banker comes with a check from his great gramps' father who deposited about 30 bucks worth of gold in their bank when uh, he went to the service. $30 then, so it gained interest to about $5,000.62, so... Not a total loss. He doesn't have ten thousand, but he does have five and sixty-two cents. <laughs> the banker was quick to point out the sixty-two cents in addition to the five thousand dollars. So that was pretty much a pointless episode. I don't hate it the way I did the Jolly Roger. So this is not rock bottom, but I am just kind of apathetic toward this episode. You know, just boring. And in the end, the whole thing was really for naught, as all it took was Lois' story in the planet to get the five thousand dollars and not. Anything anybody did made a lick of difference in that ending. It would have ended just the same way with Great Gramps getting the 5000 So I guess the best part about all this is Bobby's good deed doesn't cost the family anything. The $10,000 Great Gramps had in the coat was worthless. 
but through his actions, they were able to f- receive the $5,000 that Great Gramps' father had left for the family. That's pretty much that. Next time, things are going to get really weird with the stolen elephant. And then we're going to meet the Man of Mars, Mr. Zero. Just think about that. The Man from Mars, and I'm not saying John Jones. I feel like I should be. I mean, the character is around. He's four years old by this time. But no, the Man from Mars we're going to meet is Mr. Zero. So, if you have any comments about anything I've covered or am going to cover, you can email me at manofscreen at gmail.com. If you want to join the conversation over in the Facebook group, just put Man of Screen Podcast into your search feed and the show will come up. You can also find the show on Twitter at Man of Screencast. And if you have any interest in any other podcasting I do, I am also on Fear of the Walking Dead cast over at TwoTrueFreaks.com. We'll be on a little bit of a hiatus until June when Fear of the Walking Dead returns to AMC, but you can find our coverage of Season 7 of The Walking Dead proper over there at www.TwoTrueFreaks.com. And you can leave reviews for this show on, on iTunes and Stitcher. That will help people find the shows in those directories. So, until next time, folks. Thanks for listening. Have a good one. Bye. Don't miss the next thrill-packed episode in the amazing Man of Screen podcast. The Man of Screen podcast is produced by Mike Zemo, and all the opinions on the show are those of Mike Zemo and his guests and no one else. All music is in sound clips used in the making of the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All trademarks are copyright their original copyright holders. The Man of Screen Podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network and can be found at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. The homepage for the show is manofscreen.podomatic.com and you can email the show at manofscreen at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.